Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. A few months ago, I caught wind of a book with an intriguing title, Billy Wilder on Assignment, Dispatches from Weimar Berlin and Interwar Vienna. It turned out to be a collection of writings from when Wilder was a brash young journalist, his previous career before becoming one of Hollywood's absolute greatest directors. It's a fascinating read, and as for his career, you can't go wrong with a track record like Sunset Boulevard, Double Indemnity, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, Ace in the Hole, to name only a few. So I decided to bring together three colleagues to pick one wilder movie apiece and share a few things we love about the director's work. I was joined by three powerhouse critics of classic Hollywood who practically need no introduction. Farron Smith-Nemi, Sheila O'Malley, and Stephen Mears. Special thanks to Noah Eisenberg, who edited Billy Wilder on Assignment, which helps launch our conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I think I'm in a jaunty mood because I've just been reading a lot of writing by Billy Wilder. Often we're talking on this podcast about, you know, recent movies we've seen, but somehow I was just inspired because a collection of Wilder's writings came out recently, and it just reminded me anew of, you know, what a special filmmaker, what a special voice he is, and, you know, for me at least, how he just defines a lot of what I think of as just 20th century, like, wit or sophistication in Hollywood, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because this is not something I would ever pretend to be able to do alone. The specific occasion is a new book, Billy Wilder on Assignment, so I've gathered some guests who have read this book and have watched some Wilder's movies. I've had the pleasure of working with all three of the guests on uh, articles over the years. We'll just go alphabetically. So we'll start with Steve Mears. I'm glad to be back for this uh, auspicious occasion. <laughs> yes. Uh, next guest is Farron Smith-Nemi. Uh, welcome, Farron. Very pleased that you could make it um, and against against all odds. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm. I'm very glad to be here. I, I am currently fighting off a cold, so um, I hope I don't sound quite too husky. But you know, <laughs> so. <laughs> as opposed to my adenoidal honk, I'm sure it's a good variety for for listeners. And our our third guest uh, on our deluxe Wilder panel is uh, Sheila O'Malley. Uh, welcome, Sheila. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk about this book. It was so fun to read, um, and it's fun to connect with other people in general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amen to that. That's that's my secret agenda with the podcast. Right. Actually, <laughs> so we've all read the, the, the book, and I'm sure I've all seen most or all of, of Wilder's films, so I'm, I feel like I'm in good hands here. You know, I want to ask just kind of a conversation starter question just to kind of set the background. And, you know, for each of you, I'm curious, you know, what's important about Billy Wilder for you? Like, what place does he hold for you? I guess one of the things that I really value about him, which is actually connected to this book, is his writing. His writing for me is... Um, and his comments on writing have sort of helped me in my own writing sometimes, uh, especially when I've written scripts. Uh, he's so inventive and so, I don't know, disciplined. And his films are so diverse. Like he just worked in so many different 
genres and he feels like he belongs in every single one. So I don't know what that's love of movies, love of storytelling. He just was able to assimilate himself into all these different genres without feeling like it's a stretch. But besides, I mean, this is connected to the movies. I think for me, his writing is the thing that really, um, like I like to study and contemplate. So thank you all for listening. (laughs) (laughs) This was my TED talk. Um, (laughs) I I also think of, Billy Wilder as as a peerless, well, not, not peerless, but you know he's he's one of the greats when it comes to directing actors. Um, he would get performances out of people that were just things that you know they had not even thought they had in them, right? Like uh, you know the movie I'm going to talk about a little bit later, The Lost Weekend. Um, I think Ray Milland himself was sort of amazed <laughs> by the performance that he wound up giving in there. And um, and he was able to do that again and again and again. And also to, to spot the right actors like um, Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard and just really draw things out of them. So he's um, his is a cinema of, of great writing for sure, but it's also um, like getting um, the actors, you know, to serve his writing and draw great things out of them. Agreed wholeheartedly. I, you know, for me, Growing up in um, suburban Virginia, I didn't get a lot of opportunities to see the classics on the big screen the way they were meant to be seen. But when I was in high school, the AFI had a theater within the Kennedy Center, and it was dark most of the time, but once in a while there'd be a retrospective. And there was a Billy Wilder, I believe it was a complete career retrospective when I was maybe 16. And I was there three or four nights a week seeing everything. And I cannot tell you how transformative that was. You know, I was I was a classics buff before, but by the end of that maybe six-week period, like if there'd been a Cinephiles Foreign Legion, I would have run off and joined it. And I feel like he is the ideal gateway filmmaker into the world of classical Hollywood. Whether you're, you know, a young adult or an adult looking for a window into that world, or you're looking to get some somebody younger and impressionable into the classical mode, I don't think you could have a better starting point than Wilder. So three or four films a week for six weeks, that's my prescription. Wow, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Major. yeah, I discovered him too in my teens just because sometimes it would show up on like afternoon TV. This is like pre-cable. So I think Some Like It Hot was the first one I saw and I just was falling out with them, just roaring with laughter. Um, and I had no idea who directed it. Didn't really interest me. But then I started putting it together and it was like, oh my, now I'm hooked, you know? I was going to say, I think I, I think the first um, Billy Wilder movie that I saw was uh, actually Stalag 17, <laughs> the one that, that Sheila's going to talk about. Wow. And um, yeah, you know, I, or ordinarily, you know, I was I was kind of a you know, almost aggressively feminine little girl. And I I generally did not seek out um, movies that had, you know, virtually all male casts or whatever, but I just happened to watch it and was completely hooked by its wit and, you know, its blend of, of cynicism with, I think, authentic patriotism. 
And yeah, that was my introduction to the wild and woolly world of Billy Wilder. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I think what struck me about all of those films was in, in contrast to other films where there is a certain amount of dross that you just have to suffer through, just perfunctory plotting, moralizing, you know, dull characters, straw man characters. Wilder just managed to sidestep all of that. So instead of watching to get to the good stuff, it's just good stuff piled on top of good stuff, piled on top of more good stuff that leaves you wanting more, which is remarkable because his films tended to run long. And I'll get into that when we get to my pick. There's hardly a moment in the entire Wilder filmography when you feel like the film's marking time or making concessions. That's so true. This goes back to the screenwriting thing too. His rules for screenwriting, which I came across in the Cameron Crowe book-long interview with him, are just all about, keep it moving. The audience is fickle. That was one of them. The audience is fickle. And the other one came from uh, Lubitsch, which was let the audience add up two and two. Don't tell them the answer. Mm. Um, Which I always just loved. Audiences still love that. I feel like he feels like the audience is smart yet fickle. They're ready to move on if you bore them. Yeah, which feels to me like part of a modern sensibility in a way. I mean, you know, it's it's not a writer who's assuming that you, they kind of have to grab you by the lapels a little bit. And I wonder part of that is, I'm sorry, that's kind of a mush mouth way of saying, I wonder if journalism and his journalistic background is part of what feeds into these qualities. Um, You know, the sense of, really giving you concrete detail. So that ensures that characters or settings are, are not going to feel perfunctory. Um, you know, they're going to feel like somehow coming out of a lived experience or lived detail. But what's interesting too, is that it's journalistic. So there is that sense of, of reality, but it's also stylized because he's heightening the feel of the hustle and bustle. Um, although sometimes with people, you know, who are as Talented as Wilder, I kind of wonder, maybe it feels real to him because his mind is going that fast. But <laughs> for the rest of us, it's intoxicating to see the world through his eyes in a way. I don't know, maybe that's a that's kind of a way we can bridge into um, talking about what he wrote as a journalist. Because that was what was amazing is that reading these pieces for me, um, I mean, just to get some quick background, um, is that, you know, he is one of Hollywood's uh, emigre directors. Uh, I guess periodically surfaces and resurfaces that the reminder that so much of what is quintessentially American about Hollywood, you know, comes from the energies um, and the humor and the talents that come from uh, emigrate directors from Europe. That means he spent time in Vienna and and then Berlin. And for a while there, that was a place where he could thrive uh, as a journalist. So what did these writings tell you about him and, and, and about, you know, the Hollywood that he would help? create. It's hard to know almost where, where to start because part of what he does is gives this kind of panorama of like pop culture at the time in a way. One thing that struck me was that he was from the age of 19, because these writings cover, I think, the period between uh, 1925 and 30. So he goes from being 19 to being 24. Not only was he already a, a very lucid wordsmith, but he had a great sense of how to structure a story, how to start in the middle and then flash back, which is something you'd see in his films a lot. Um, I'm thinking of the one where he he recounts his time as a kind of a, a taxi dancer, a male taxi dancer, where he 
uh, hires himself out as a dance partner for kind of well-to-do tourists. And it starts in the present tense with his very ironic musings. And then it, it kind of jumps back to when he was at loose ends and he's offered this job by a character that you, you know, the type of character that you would see in his films, kind of, you know, you own a suit, you want to make some money. And uh, that sort of rewind is so much more enticing than if he were to just say, you know, in 1926, I worked as a dancer. You know, you'll see that in Double Indemnity and in Sunset Boulevard, this playfulness with chronology, which is just one of the many arrows in his quiver. And it's fun to find out that he always had it. Yeah, that piece, which starts the book about his time as a dancer, uh, was just a stoner. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think later in the book, he talks about how he got his break to start writing. And I think it was this piece that an editor said, you know, he was talking to some editor because he was very connected in the coffee house culture. He was meeting everybody. And he was telling the editor about his experiences. And he said, oh, you should, you should write about that. So I don't know if there were other pieces before he, I don't know, but it's so confident. I mean, he at right out of the gate, it's funny. It's um, exaggerated. It's, um, filled with dialogue too. And there's one, well, I mean, not just one throughout, he's describing things. There's a, when he's talking about his first day there and he enters the hotel and you can almost see the camera moves. He's like, I enter. And then there's like all these different characters in the lobby, like swooping by. And there's a lady with a, you know, her crocodile shoes strutting by. (laughs) It's like, um, he's painting a picture he needs to grab you with details like that. So it's filled with just characters that you remember. Um, I absolutely loved that piece, but there's many, many more. I, for me, I loved his personal essays even more than his sort of little movie reviews and theater reviews. I just thought his essays about his life and about Berlin life were just so vivid, so vivid. And also there was one line, and I don't know which piece it was in, but to me, this is quintessential. Billy Wilder, he says, I appreciate and honor the so-called truth, (laughs) which I just thought was so funny because it has to be so-called. It's so-called. Don't tell me, you know, um, it just has that little dig of, you know, individualistic, you know, a little skeptical Anyway, it was filled with gems like that that I absolutely loved. Yeah, well, that that reminds me. I mean, Farron, you mentioned you know cynicism as as being a quality. He also ranges far and wide in like different tones and shades of cynicism. In that case, that's kind of like a cheerful cynicism, but you know, obviously, there are also darker ones you can see um, in, in in his movies. Yeah, I I think probably um, at least for me, the the darkest piece in the the book is um, almost sort of a a short story about the man who is um, hired to, you know, get like 40 marks a week, just sitting in the corner smiling, just constantly smiling. And uh, that's all he has to do. And it sort of follows him, you know, he starts out thinking, well, you know, that piece of cake, you know, and then he discovers it's actually really hard to sit all day and smile and never do anything else. And I think his sweetheart breaks up with him. And then eventually it transpires that he had been hired by a guy who was running like a 
criminal embezzlement scheme. I, you know, and he's like, I, I wanted you to smile because every time I looked over at you, I, you know, I, I would see that grin and I would think, ah, oh, I can do anything. You know, <laughs> like um, it's it's in that piece that I really see the Billy Wilder to come. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, that's um, you know, it's not long enough for a movie, but I I can, I can see somebody telling that story in in one of his movies, definitely. Um, I also really enjoyed, like, like, in the piece that he writes about um, filming uh, people on Sunday, um, you know, and he he talks about um, about what you know. But, oh, and here was you know Robert Siadmak, you know, and then Edgar Ulmer came along, and I'm like, hey, I know those names. It's a charming feeling to see something you know that's written. you know their future and they don't, and uh, that's always. Uh, a bright little experience as a reader. There are lots of these moments in this book. Yeah, the cameos were great. It gives you a sense too of, you know, this is the 20s, moving into the late 20s, and these people are going to have to flee. They don't know it yet. And and yet there they are still doing, you know, already doing all those, all the things that we now know them for. It makes you kind of want to be in Berlin, even though there's was obviously a sickness deep at the heart of what was going on underneath all of this. But um, yeah, it was really cool to see those people. Yeah. I, I also really responded to that, to that story. Um, just, it, I mean, it's, the word is overused, but it's almost something Kafka-esque about it. Just the, the kind of existential bleakness and yeah, the process of disillusionment. I, I mean, I guess, cause I really freshly just rewatched the apartment, the kind of, feeling of like thinking you've got something, but also like perpetually running in place in a way that, you know, also kind of, kind of came out um, through that. And, and yeah, and people and people on Sunday seeing, yeah, the stars that would come. And I, I left out one of the alternate titles. I'm going to get this wrong, but they, they, in the beginning of the piece, doesn't he like list some of the, the title that they wanted to call it at first. It's like the way things really are or something. I thought that was so charming, <laughs> you know, like they really wanted to get it, you know, yeah how we live now or something it was like that you know yeah exactly yeah something something like that um and i mean also like so much somewhat experimental movie as far as they go i mean it's in the big picture of things a kind of hybrid film um i guess it sometimes gets programmed that way too so it's kind of interesting to see that i think it's called that's exactly how things are (laughs) (laughs) i guess that's so funny yeah um, but I guess there is maybe that edge, Sheila, that you were just describing in there. It's not like totally like, you know, starry eyed. It's like, that's exactly how things work. You know? <laughs> yeah, no way. No way is that on the level. <laughs> yeah. Um, Steve, were you about to say something? Well, uh, just speaking of cameos, we get in these writings, like we get a sketch of Eric von Stroheim that mentions uh, Gloria Swanson and Queen Kelly. 20 plus years before they would all make Sunset Boulevard together. We also see the genesis, I think, of some of his characters. Like I can see some some Joe Gillis, the Holden character in, in Sunset Boulevard, in the way he presents himself as this dancer, this kind of gigolo, halfway amused, halfway resentful, that he has to, you know, butter up his so-called betters. And then as he becomes more of a seasoned writer, we kind of see some of his hard-boiled journalists, you know, maybe looking ahead to Ace in the Hole or the front page, 
and you know, and then you you mentioned uh, what are the dancers called? The Tiller Girls. <laughs> yeah, the Tiller Girls. Couldn't help but think of Sweet Sue and her society syncopators from Some Like It Hot. Yeah. So it's just funny to read these pieces with a sense of foresight. He's he's really rather rude about Eric von Stroheim, you know, to to the point where I have to wonder if if von Stroheim ever saw the the article, you know, since it was published um, in Germany and he was uh, by then in the States, maybe not. But, the, you know, then again, maybe he was like, ah, you know, it was water under the bridge all those years ago. But uh, it, it's just a, a really tart kind of summary of, of Stroheim's career ups and downs. And the Tiller girls don't get one article. They get two, you know. The Tiller girls come to town and wreak havoc. And um, everyone is so excited when they get off the train. And, yeah, it's... Totally, some like it hot, those girls getting off the train and just everyone wondering who they are and following them about. I loved those pieces. Yeah. They were so funny. I mean, it's funny because he seems to be, you know, on, on the knife's edge of having kind of a, a sense of humor about the hype, but also obviously being part of it because he's writing these articles. Um, so, I mean, there's always kind of like that, which, you know, you could extend to his movies as well, which is that, you know, there's a lot of cynicism in them, but there's also, you know, just beautiful moments of romanticism moments that would seem to be incompatible if you stuck with only, you know, the, the jaded viewpoint. Uh, does, does anyone want to kind of talk that through a little and, and how how exactly he, he, he made his way into being so much uh, at, at the heart of, of Hollywood from at this point being just, you know, extremely talented journalist? Well, I believe he, he, wrote, he wrote a screenplay called, um, called Pam Pam, and um, so somehow or other, it was uh, optioned by Paramount. And, you know, him being, you know, like a, a very young go-getter personality, they offered to uh, bring him over and he just leaped at the chance. And then what eventually happened was he, he went to Hollywood. Um, he hung around Paramount for a while trying to get Pam Pam made. And it didn't happen. And then eventually, at some point, he had to go back across Mexico and like redo his whole visa rigmarole, which almost didn't happen. But yeah, this book shows him to be like a, a real lover of the United States. And in that sense, I think it also kind of predicts a lot of his future arc. The way he would come here and fall in love with our slang, for example, I can already kind of sense that. And I just wanted to shout out um, the translator, Shelley Frisch, because um, I, I don't know. I mean, I assume that it sounds like Billy Wilder, but it was in German and she's rendered like an English text where I, I can hear him throughout. And uh, that, that could not have been easy. It's really a nice translation. Yeah, thanks for pointing, pointing that out, because I, I think I've read other translations, not of these writings, but of, of something that's supposed to be like, you know, jaunty in German or something in English and, and using like, I don't know, outdated slang or something or, you know, and this, this, this has this has a, a, a swing to it and a speed to it and a kind of like wet ink quality to it at times, which is appropriate to, you know, it's being journalism newspaper pieces um it, w the, i guess the name of the newspaper that he wrote a lot of, at one point was just called tempo 
I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. And, you know, within a few years in the 40s, you know, making Double Indemnity the last weekend, it's kind of incredible. I don't really know how to attribute that, that jump, you know, to becoming a filmmaker. Um, I mean, obviously, I guess being part of a studio system helps, but you have to be a person who attracts the confidence of the, of the system to be able to pilot one of those ships, I suppose. But maybe we can talk about a few of the movies that, that he directed. We've each chosen one. Should we go chronologically? I guess we might as well. I was just talking about, just mentioned The Lost Weekend, um, 1945. Baron, do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. So um, with The Lost Weekend, it still holds up as a really extraordinary piece of filmmaking. Right before I came on the podcast, I watched Eddie Muller of TCM's Noir or Not thing that he did. Um, and it was on The Lost Weekend. And I think it was the only time I've seen him sort of say, well, I can't decide. <laughs> because its style and its feeling of hopelessness is so noir. But at the same time, you know, there's no crime in there unless you consider what the lead character, Don Burnham, is doing to himself through his addiction to to be a crime. But it's really sordid and yet at the same time often very beautiful to look at. And this is something that Wilder was was often able to do. Um, There's, you know, that beautiful shot that opens the movie, you know, going out, out over the skyline and then like finding his window, you know, with a bottle hanging outside of it and like going in. And there are a lot of moments like that. Grace notes in the the midst of all of this harrowing events. If I were to link it to his journalism, the observational quality that, that it has in these like little essays in the book, you see him sort of wandering around Berlin, going to the coffee houses and things like that, and just um, picking up on characters, what people are, are giving off. And so the, the Lost Weekend sort of you know, takes that and trains it on a, a guy who's really like at the absolute end of his rope. And for all that it's an extraordinarily dark movie, I think it does have a a sympathy to it that helps it a lot. In addition to this book, Billy Wilder on Assignment, I also tried to start reading The Lost Weekend, the novel. And I, you know, like, I didn't get very far with it at all like maybe a, a dozen pages because it is just so bleak and, and and so despairing in tone. So as bleak as The Lost Weekend, the movie is, and even given the fact that the hopeful note that it ends on has long struck a lot of people as, you know, kind of maybe not the way things are really going to work out, there's still a, a sympathy in, in this movie that I think illustrates another side to Wilder and his direction. Yeah, and I'm sure maybe there were even sensitivities in terms of how far you could go to actually uh, depict what it was like. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm now looking back, you, you don't necessarily know that there's a cycle of films going on until you're you know, taking a look back. 
there were definitely other movies being made about alcoholism at this time. And now looking back, people perhaps link it, you know, to the GIs who were coming home, you know, drinking to like soothe their shattered nerves, etc. And all of a sudden it wasn't like Thin Man, Nick and Nora, woohoo, you know, like it, it you know, people started seeing a, a dark side to it as well. I think 45 was, excuse the pun, a watershed year for depictions of that because we also got like A Tree Grows in Brooklyn where the the heroine's beloved father drinks himself to death. And uh, so suddenly this topic is being approached with a greater realism instead of, like you say, you know, a martini glass was a prop for these bon vivant characters or, you know, the drunk on the corner was a comic relief character suddenly and with great force that changed right after the war and i think spearheaded by the lost weekend yeah i mean um wilder himself was not an alcoholic you know he was somebody you know who like have two martinis that's it go home you're fine it it wasn't his you know thing but charles brackett who he co-wrote it with his wife was probably an alcoholic Um, There had been a lot of alcoholism in his family. And Wilder was also coming off working with Raymond Chandler, who had a a prominent drinking problem. Maybe this prompted him to choose this material. But I, I I think it also just kind of fascinated him. I think some of the best parts of the screenplay Indeed, the movie are when Don Burnham, played by Ray Milland, is kind of attempting to explain why he drinks. He has that one monologue in the middle, which I don't remember word for word, but it starts with him saying, yeah, you know, it it pickles my liver. You know, it's it's probably killing me. But when I'm doing it, I'm, I'm in a balloon sailing over Niagara Falls. The Wilder sees very clearly how this drinking gives this character who you know has has been working at being a writer and has so far not been very successful that it's a way of of relieving the pain of that sarah you you mentioned uh wilder's facility with actors and his capacity to draw performances from them that they might have not thought themselves capable of he'd just done it with mcmurray in in double indemnity but could you talk about what an image-changing role this was for Ray Milland and what sort of work he'd been doing up to that point. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Milland was born in in Britain, and, you know, on screen he read rather genteel and upper crust, you know, all all his life. He, He even does, to a certain extent, in The Lost Weekend, but he played comedies for large part, you know, romances. Sometimes his characters had a bit of an edge, but other times, um, mostly he was playing like uh, romantic leads and being cast in The Lost Weekend. You know, his his handsomeness and the, the charm that he could project on screen guaranteed that you weren't going to sort of just turn away from this character in disgust, which is otherwise entirely possible given how low you see him sink. So I think that that quality was probably part of why Wilder wanted him. But on the other hand, he really went deep for this movie. 
Miland, by the way, as far as I know, was also not a drinker. Um, this was something that, you know, he was doing like through, you know, observation and by like pulling something out of himself. I did not know that. Yeah. It's so convincing. When you think about about a guy, you know, who's like, you know, he's been playing, with, you know, with like with Gene Arthur and Paulette Goddard and making, you know, these these lovely comedies or whatever. And and then he's willing to, you know, play somebody, you know, who's like crawling around on the floor with the DTs, you know, like getting, you know, taunted by this sinister male nurse in, in the alcoholic ward, stealing from women, you know, he steals the payment for the maid. I mean, how low is that? And Milan just, he never winks at the audience. He never, he never steps back. He is just giving you this character straight. And it's really amazing. It's a performance that really holds up. I think he, he truly deserved that Oscar. Yeah, and I guess it's also an uh, early example of the uh, the perpetual competition of what did you do to your body to uh, to achieve a character? Because um, he also that's another thing that strikes me when you just look look at him on screen, looking rather gaunt. So yeah, that would be forty five last weekend. Maybe we can trip along through the decades and go to another movie of Wilder's. Sheila, I think yours is the next movie. Yeah, so I picked one of my favorites of his, which is Dialogue Seventeen. It's my favorite for a number of reasons, but he himself said that if he had to pick a movie that sort of represented his view of the world and his actual outlook, it would be this film, um, which is very intriguing and not all that surprising. You know, as you mentioned, Farron, there is a, a real solid patriotism in this film, and yet it's it, it's not flag-waving. It's really about sort of individualism and uh, survival and, you know, the Nazis who are guarding them at the POW camp, they're goofballs and they're creatures of mockery, which is an interesting sort of uh, outlook and was very controversial at the time, or not controversial, people weren't sure it was going to work. And um, at the time that he did this, he really needed a hit because Ace in the Hole, just nobody was into that movie. But Ace in the Hole is probably as cynical as Wilder ever got. The thing about Stalag 17 is it really mixes almost slapstick comedy at times with really gripping story about who's the spy and this central character of um, Sergeant Septon, who is William Holden. An interesting thing about the casting of Holden, Holden was very concerned that he, he really wanted there to be some indication that Septon was anti-Nazi, that he was patriotic. He wanted at least a couple lines to show you that he wasn't <laughs> as he was on the page, which is in it for himself. He's in it for himself. And Wilder, of course, resisted. And this gave William Holden that that real edge, which is why that character is, I mean, really so attractive, uh, in my opinion. I mean, attractive, you know, um, that's not what I meant. But, um, you know, when he decides to be the one to escape, he does it because 
he might get the reward, you know, from the rich family back in the States. I mean, we could argue about whether or not that's on the level, but he's just a, a very, I can see why Wilder saw him. I mean, he called him his alter ego. And, you know, he's not particularly easy to like. He's not a joiner. He does not play well with others. He sits in the background. He's not even really in a lot of scenes. He's just back there. There's not a lot of cuts to him, close-ups to hold, of Holden to show what he's thinking. But he's separate. He is completely separate. The other thing that I'll just mention before I'm going on is um, how unsentimental this film is. And as I mentioned before, I think it takes a lot of discipline. Maybe it didn't for Wilder take discipline. This was just his kind of view of the world to really never give the audience, you know, let's just see him as a good guy. Let's just, you know, have a little bit of a moment where they're all together. Like the final line of the film is, listen, if I see you guys on the street, I'm going to pretend I never knew you because they all turn on him. They all are, assume that he's the spy and he's not. And so they've revealed themselves. The group has revealed themselves as the mob that the group often is. And um, Sefton is like, peace out, peace out. I'm going to go get that reward money. So I don't know. There's many elements of it that I love, but I think Sefton's uh, centrality is just, and his, his character is so compelling. Yeah. I mean, it's also that kind of classic setup of, you know, what What would you do in that circumstance? You know, it sets up that kind of, whatever it's called, little prisoner's game or, you know, what what compromises would you make? And you have the, you run the gamut with those guys. I mean, it started as a very successful Broadway play. Um, and you can tell that he really didn't do much to open it up. It really takes place all in that barracks. And so you ha run the gamut with all of those POWs you have the wisecrackers you have the guy really suffering from PTSD you have you know the goofball duo uh, animal and Shapiro and then the guys who are like ready to lead the charge against Sefton when they um, suspect him so you really get the full spectrum of how this could go and how Billy Wilder just really was not sentimental about, well, someone's going to stick up for him. You know, someone's going to, you know, except for the little guy in the background, his little sidekick who never says anything. And yet he narrates it. The opening voiceover is that little sidekick guy. It's a pretty cold, <laughs> there's a cold heart here, mm. which I find very refreshing. So that probably says a lot about me. But um, for example, I would say Sefton is like not Rick in Casablanca. You know, there are elements that are similar, but Rick is given this sort of heroic background, his past, his selflessness in the final moment. And Wilder was like, no, nope. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, it's so it's released in 1953. So it's looking back, you know, a number of years, but in a way, it also has a way that it feels like it's about the present. The, you know, the Korean War is starting up. There are POWs. This was one of the reasons why people thought it might not fly. Like, why are we showing all this as kind of a joke? All of them partying and ogling the Russian women in the next <laughs> barracks and stuff. And also we have the rise of the McCarthy era, where it's going to be the group going after someone who they think is guilty 
And there's no way you can defend yourself against a group like that. So I think there was some level of very subtextual commentary on maybe what was going on. I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch. But do you think Wilder was trying to say anything about the McCarthy era and the HUAC hearings that had been going on before and the blacklist? As far as I know, he didn't make any statement about it, any explicit statement, but it made me extremely uncomfortable, makes me extremely uncomfortable watching those scenes where there's no way that you can go up against a mob like that. How do you, you just say it's not you. I didn't do it. I don't know what you're, what you're talking about. It feels very, not ripped from the headlines, but very much of its era, even though it's timeless. Human beings do do this. We don't want to sort of admit it, but that's what happens. You deny it and then they beat the hell out of you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. And what does he say? He says, there's only two people who know I did it, me and the guy who did do it, you know, and, you know, really terrible things happen when crowds gather like that. So I don't know. And maybe from his own World War II, I mean, he lost like his whole family in the concentration camp. So you know, that's the sort of, uh, can be the end result of a mob mentality. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think, I don't know, what always comes to mind in terms of mob mentality, and, and also speaking of another emigre director, that the, the first movie that uh, Fritz Lang made in, in America was Fury, which I always, <laughs> I always think that's quite a pointed choice. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, you're so right that, that this was adapted from a long-running Broadway play, and he didn't open it up too much. It doesn't have the overcompensatory quality of trying to make a play cinematic, but it also doesn't have the airless quality of so many plays that are preserved intact, you know, almost in amber with much of the original cast repeating their roles, Shapiro and Animal. I think that was Harvey Lembeck and Robert Strauss. They'd given those performances hundreds of times on the stage, but they, like everyone else, feel so fresh and spontaneous, and credit for that must go to Wilder. And then, of course, we're adding the freshest ingredient, Holden, who was new to the, to the material, um, and who I feel like if Wilder had an actor muse, the way Ford had Wayne and, and Capra had Stewart and so on, it would have to be either Holden or Lemon. So I, I'm going to talk about Lemon. Do you want to talk about Holden and how his sensibilities gelled with Wilder? Yes. I mean, he he said it explicitly a couple of times that he loved William Holden. I mean, he loved sort of everything about him. He would, He talked about how wonderful he was physically and how Holden could... Um, really do like there's a, a joke I think it was in Sabrina he was supposed to jump over a wall to come join her and Billy Wilder said could you just jump a little slower as though he could with gravity you know make his body but that was the amount <laughs> of trust that he had in Holden's physicality but I think his you know Sefton as I mentioned Holden wanted to soften the part a bit and Wilder was it was was firm no that's not what this is about and he was right. And Holden's sort of accepting of, okay, this is what the director wants and how good he is at that, which he really hadn't been asked to do that. And then, of course, later in his career, that's so much a part of what Holden 
it gave new life to another aspect. He wasn't just going to be sort of a leading man, a pretty golden boy leading man. He was had this edge that I think Wilder really found not just refreshing, but very American, which again, Wilder was very pro-America, but not in a jingoistic way. It was more, let's hear it for the individual. The individual can survive the individual here can uh, make a life for himself. And if you're kind of doggy dog, then that's the way it goes. Um, So uh, yeah, I feel like he felt a kindred spirit in Holden and loved him, loved him very much on screen. And you're right. There's a similar love of Jack Lemmon. So it's interesting. The people he sort of was drawn to as actors, just sort of in a natural affinity kind of way. And loving an actor like that, a director just loving an actor, just makes the actor trust the director. Okay, okay, boss, I'll do what you ask me to do. I'll mm-hmm. listen to you and take your direction. And you get miracles when actors trust directors like that. Well, I guess my movie would be up next and, and Jack Lemon would be the actor in question. But I'm going to leave that to Steve uh, to, to talk about. So I'll just talk about some other aspects of, of the apartment. I mean, you were just talking about Wilder on, on America. I mean, this is definitely one of the more like jaded portraits of the rat race in a way. And maybe another key partnership in this movie uh, is just with the art director, Alexander Trauner. And I thought I'd maybe just talk a bit about Wilder as a director in terms of images as well. Um, I mean, I think uh, obviously because of his just genius with, with words and that's equally important in this film. But this, this is also a movie where the, the settings and the spaces that he frames are so incredible and say so much, you know, you know, I think of Jack Lemmon in, in his kitchen or in his apartment and this weird, like, shared transitory space. Um, but, you know, the, the signature image it being the, the office space, uh, which, you know, a lot of movies have done this shot of the, you know, thousand desk sets in this long shot with a, a vanishing point to just more desks. But, you know, it seems one of, one of the defining ones, um, partly also because of just the way Lemon inhabits it. It starts out where he's almost finding music uh, in, in the sound of, I don't even know what it is, like a typewriter or something. And he's like bobbing his head along to it. So, yeah, this is, I guess, also in a line of New York office, Madison Avenue. Well, this is the insurance industry. So it's, it's a bit, there's, <laughs> there's less glamour in it. But uh, if, if there is glamour, it's in this idea of, you know, executives who have their double lives, taking taking girls to some some place. Uh, and that place is the Lemon character's apartment. And I, I guess I've forgotten how fundamentally twisted this movie is. Um, it's kind of funny that it's such a touchstone of, of, I don't know, mainstream Hollywood comedy. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, that's the hugely popular comedy, you know, fetid with awards and everything. Because it's it's kind of a crazy, perverse premise, you know, where... He's constantly being kicked out of his house so that executives can have these extramarital affairs while he's like suffering in the street, getting catching colds. It's if it wasn't so like cheerfully and funnily treated, yeah, again, it's kind of bleak. I mean, this is like even worse than being a cog in a machine. I mean, it's like it's just another another level of, of exploitation. So it's kind of crazy. That's not ever anything you feel the weight of. And in a way, it's almost about like his romance with his job because, you know, his experience with, with his apartment and, and with his work, it's he's kind of kept himself in this position where he's entering these unequal <laughs> relationships with 
executives that we could just kick them out at any time. And I don't know, that felt like there's a parallel there just with Shirley MacLaine's character, who is in an unhappy uh, relationship with a married man. Um, and it takes a while for her to be able to break out of that. So yeah, for him, it's also just his, his work, but he's still this like cheerful, eager beaver type. So I just really love that all the kind of subtleties of that characterization and, and development. Um, but um, yeah, just jumping back to the visual, just that the sense of city space, of urbanity. Um, he obviously has a lot of fun with painting this portrait of you know nosy neighbors. I, oh, one other thing I want to mention is speaking of performance as well as Fred McMurray in this. This is definitely something I didn't notice before, maybe because I hadn't encountered a lot of people like this the first time I watched it. But his portrait of like a salesman executive is right on just watching him you know lie through his teeth to Shirley MacLaine's character in one scene and then turn around and and say to Jack Lemmon you know oh you know how it is with girls but he just has this coldness um that I didn't really sense before uh, you know meanwhile Shirley MacLaine being like the sweet trapped character in a way have any of you watched it recently I too I mean I rewatched it and it's really a brutal to me it's a brutal movie <laughs> partly because of Fred McMurray's performance, but mostly because of Shirley MacLaine's performance. And, you know, Billy Wilder is often, I've heard, you know, misogynistic and anti-woman a lot. And for me, I mean, his sympathy for her character, I mean, it's so apparent. It's heartbreaking. Like when he gives her that $100 bill and she, it's like he has stabbed her. Her whole body, which of course she was yeah. a dancer and she really understood space and her body in space. And it is, it's not a close up of her devastated face. It, she does it in real time. I don't know. I was very, uh, this past time, just really watching her and really enjoying, which I want to go back and, and look at those party scenes in the office because there is, it's like a mad magazine cartoon. If you really look at what is going on back there, it, there's a strip teases, but there's people making out in corners. There's like people fighting and crying and it's unbelievable, you know, and the camera's moving through and they don't look like extras standing around. They look like they're actually at some crazy inappropriate office, office party. So his management of the crowd and the camera moves through that, you know, I mean, orgy. It's a uh, it's a Christmas party and those people are, you know. Um, so that was another thing. I'm going to go back and look and see see what else I can see is going on back there. Yeah, there's some crazy dance moves also that they kind of bust out at one point. <laughs> yeah, and there's one, like the, one of the women that is taken to the apartment is doing that striptease surrounded by just a howling mob. And the women in the mob are also screaming. There's one woman, who like random woman on the side who's like, yes, <laughs> like screaming. I was like, wow, okay. I mean, I haven't seen it in, in a while. And now I'm, I'm wishing that I had re-seen it recently but i find that this movie is is quite popular with like millennials and and even younger and you know i i theorize that you know maybe part of it is uh, it's like a running theme of the movie is um how cold this corporate atmosphere is and how you know like it doesn't matter how many years you've put in or what you've done they will 
toss your ass out on the sidewalk without so much as a second thought. And there's a couple of points where that's spelled out to Jack Lemon in, in more or less, you know, like those words, you know, and I think that, you know, they look at that, you know, and, and unfortunately it, it sort of jibes, you know, with, with their experience of what, working in our late capitalist world is actually like i mean that is that is still like quite searingly accurate yeah i'm so glad you said that i really agree i was afraid i would i would sound like uh, like a wet blanket since you've been talking about so but i i agree entirely with what you're saying that that's really comes across and it's just as fresh as ever. and the feeling that the executives are his friends up to the moment that he doesn't do exactly what they want him to do so yeah, it's it is brutal. I think Sheila, you said. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, you you could maybe even show it on a double bill with the assistant. You know, like the assistant is not at all a funny movie. Maybe you show that one first, and then you show the apartment, so they don't leave the theater feeling suicidal. But you know, the, like there is some thematic overlap. <laughs> I think that's so true. I read something that uh, I can't remember where it was. It was when Mad Men first came out. And Matthew Weiner uh, listed the films that he basically made everyone watch. This was one of them. The best of everything was on there, the apartment, because it was like, here's the sort of vibe that we're going for. The, you know, the atmosphere in this, in offices and the sexism and the, you know, complete, you know, there's no HR. I mean, come on. So, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I think it, it's very contemporary in a way that you don't really, it doesn't really date all that much. And, and you're so right. It is, you hit the nail on the head when you called it twisted. This is romance Wilder style. You know, this is a film about how a suicide attempt catalyzes uh, a savior complex in a masochist, <laughs> you know, and, and Wilder <laughs> finds this whole thing wildly romantic. And by the end, so do we, because by the time she says, shut up and deal at the end, We've had to shed so much baggage to get to that moment of triumph, even if it's, you know, we don't know if it's permanent or short-lived, but it's just such a, I get a lump in my throat just thinking about it. And also, I don't know if comedic and dramatic elements have ever been better balanced. Mm. You know, I mean, there's such a thing as the dramedy, but usually it's like 70-30 in one direction. You know, it's a movie that's funny all the way through, but then somebody dies or... You know, it's a it's an Alexander Payne kind of thing that finds absurdity in the in the tragedy of the human condition. But this is a true comedy drama, mm -hmm. and those elements exist not discreetly, but in harmony. And she doesn't say "I love you" back. She just says "shut up and deal." So this goes back to what I keep, you know I've said a couple of times about his discipline, his un his refusal to be sentimental. And maybe that's part of what the Lubitsch, you know, let the audience add two and two. We know she loves him. You know, we don't need her to say it and to undercut perhaps the softness that we associate with love with a card game. That's fascinating. Yeah. Actually, I replayed the last, <laughs> their exchange there. It's, I mean, I also felt like it's, Maybe eventually she could say it back, but at that point she's just like, 
you know, I need to get there. <laughs> let's, just, you know, just at this point, let, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> uh, shut up and deal. Yeah. Actually, I, 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 Wilder must have one of the greatest collections of, of last lines, uh, I think. So yeah, that's the apartment. And uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I wanted to leave uh, Jack Lemon to Steve. Uh, the only thing I'll say about uh, Lemon in the apartment is that I really newly appreciated him in this film. I remembered him as working harder for the comedy or the drama in this movie and uh, when I first saw it, but I didn't see the effort this time. Um, so I don't know if that means that I just, uh, I grew up somehow or something, I don't know. Um, but anyway, Steve, uh, why don't you take it away with Avanti? Sure. So I, I love that we have one film from each decade, too. So now we're up to the 70s. And uh, this is maybe the one film out of the four that people won't have seen, which is why I picked it. It is the story of a very uptight American tycoon, played by Lemon, who gets word that his father, who owned a corporation that employed tens of thousands of people, has uh, suddenly been killed in a, in a car accident in Italy where he vacations for a month each summer. So Lemon flies over to claim the body. He has a, a very much not a meet cute, more like a, a meet cringe with Juliet Mills, who plays a young English woman. Find out that, they, that they're both staying at the same hotel, the hotel where his father used to stay. And before long, it's clear that his father was not going over there every summer for the waters, but to carry on an affair with Mills's mother. And so the rest of the film is about this process of cutting through the red tape to get the body back to Baltimore for the big lavish funeral that's being planned. And, you know, Lemon's brushes with Italian bureaucracy, the lunch hour, which of course lasts three hours, the need to bribe <laughs> various local officials to get the zinc line coffin that he needs to get the body back by Tuesday. And throughout he's getting closer with Juliet Mills and I won't say falling in love but maybe discovering a better nature to himself that enables him to see her for the person of substance that she's always been and then she's going through some turmoil herself so that's that's kind of like the thumbnail there's a lot more going on there's there are a lot of subplots uh, digressions you know, it's a film that takes its time. It's 145 minutes long. And that's kind of, that kind of leads to the two knocks on it, which are that it's, it's indulgent and it's derivative. And I kind of want to take both of those apart, if I may, because I love this film. I think it's the best late period Wilder. Derivative is, I think, is, is misapplied. Because it's a film about, it's a cynical love story with asides about American entitlement and can, can we ever have too many of those? And also, you know, it, it's a variation on a theme, which Wilder has expressed before, but that's not my definition of derivative. If that's der if variation on a theme is derivative, then Ozu's derivative. A derivative is when you fail to come up with any fresh insights. And I think Avanti does that because it, you know, the, the characters trace a very wide arc. This is not the, the chipper... Jack Lemon of the apartment. This is much closer to the Lemon of, say, uh, Save the Tiger, which came a year later. He's very irascible, bombastic, cruel, even. He's capable of saying things to Juliet Mills that will have you gasping. And it's not that he 
has a complete change of heart because after all the film takes place over three days but it's more just like he learns to loosen the reins a bit that he doesn't have to always be in control that people will like him and he will like himself better if he's not always bending people to his will and uh likewise juliet mills she has this kind of debilitatingly low self-esteem that comes from her perception that she's overweight and gradually she discovers that she's not depressed because she overeats but that she overeats because she's depressed because society puts her in a box because she likes to eat and this is a vicious cycle and she can't be happy till she breaks out of it and when she does she starts to blossom but it's not a case of you know her seeing herself anew through the adoring eyes of her lover wilder would never give us something that trite he's much more subversive rather lemon starts to see her the way she's begun to see herself so you know lots of nuances uh i think it earns its minutes you know it's it's remarkable to think that a comedy can sustain its premise this is more of a straight comedy than the apartment for approaching two and a half hours Every other example I can think of is either some other kind of subgenre like, you know, British surrealism, Oh Lucky Man, or the ruling class, or some kind of all-star extravaganza that I would probably find exasperating if I watched now, like it's a mad, 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 mad world. You know, if, if you could think of another two and a half hour comedy that doesn't lag, I'd love to put it in my queue, but this may be the only one. And how he does it is he just keeps building. He piles characters and complications on top of each other. It's not just Lemon and Mills. There's the, the hotel concierge played by Clive Revel, who, who steals the film and should have been nominated. And then we meet the other hotel staff. There's a you know, blackmailing valet and, and a pregnant maid. And then in the last 25 minutes, we get this character of this diplomat played by uh, Edward Andrews, who's kind of like Paul Ford from The Music Man reincarnate. And he comes in with his seersucker suit and his, and his Sergeant Bilko glasses and starts pushing everybody around. And it gives the movie a jolt of adrenaline. And so, you know, it's like the idol in Italy that Lemon takes. The movie is like a place you don't want to leave. I don't think I could put it any, any better than that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I was just racking my brain for like longer comedies, but it's, I don't know. It's true. I can't, I don't know. Short of like Tony Erdman or something. That's, that's pretty long. Oh, well, that's true. <laughs> that's yeah. Totally different. But mostly when you hear two and a half hour comedy, it just sounds like a death sentence, you know, something went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one thing I'm curious about, you know, when this came out 72, I mean, what's it like watching that movie and kind of being aware of what, what else was starting to come out and was coming out at, at that point? I mean, I don't know if you could think of it in those, those terms. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And, and I've, I've, I've always felt that there needs to be a long form piece of writing on like how studio era auteurs reacted to the new freedoms of the breakdown of the studio system, because you see what he's doing and what Hitchcock's doing and what's what Cucor is doing. And, you know, some of them, kept right on doing what they had been doing their whole careers and made films that seemed ever more anachronistic. Some of them went buck wild 
And I think Wilder, I think this is this is the farthest he pushed it. This is a film with substantial nudity and vulgarity and insinuation. But I think the most perhaps revolutionary thing that's in this film is just this continental sense of moral laxity. You know, everyone in this hotel has approved of this long-running affair for years, and now everyone is pushing Lemon to pick up where his father left off with the daughter of his father's mistress, just to keep things in the family. And there's just an air of non-judgment to it that some viewers may struggle with. I mean, if, if it weren't for Wilder's deft touch, I don't know that I'd be responding to it as favorably. But this is the kind of thing that never could have been done under the code. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's actually funny. We did talk on, on a few podcasts back. Actually, it was Bruce Bennett. He was talking about an Ulmer movie that he saw from the late 70s that was just completely bizarre. What was that? The Human Factor. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Dimitric, Dimitric. But yeah, very jarring kind of clash of sensibilities in it. Um, and then I guess there's also, speaking of like directors continuing to make movies into the 70s from, from earlier, Otto Preminger, I guess, also has a movie called The Human Factor, which I have not seen. <laughs> um, that, it's funny you mentioned Preminger because, you know, Skidoo is kind of what I was thinking of when I said some directors went hog wild. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, th- I'm racking my brains to- is there like a positive image of marriage in Billy Wilder's movies? Not positive, but like conventional. Um, I mean, I guess Sabrina has a happy ending. You know, they get together. I mean, they might all get together, but it's not particularly, you know, white picket fancy. Right. Yeah, that may be the closest he comes. I don't know. It's kind of like, I just looked this up like same time next year which was, you know, 1978, but it's a similar story. It's these people who come together once a year to, you know, mess around. And uh, it's a very substantial relationship, but they have other, you know, they are free to be with be with each other. The doctor and his wife in the apartment is a very positive oh, marriage. Oh, I love them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're adorable. You know, like... You know, I I don't think they have the field to themselves, but they must be close to it. Yeah, it just wasn't his, it didn't seem to be his thing, so. Yeah, the, the institution of marriage was not the uh, <laughs> the, the sun around which uh, yeah. Wilder's movies yeah, over it. That's, it's fair, and it's funny you said that, because I, I didn't even think, well, yeah, there's the neighbors in the, in the apartment. Great relationship. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that might bring us to the end of the features. Any, any sort of parting thoughts uh, about Wilder anyone wants, wants to share? Well, I, just a, an anecdote that I love. In 1993, the Oscar for Best Foreign Film went to a Spanish film called Bella Pac. And when the director, Fernando Trueba, accepted, he said, I quote, I would like to believe in God in order to thank him for this prize, but I only believe in Billy Wilder. So thank you, Mr. Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> and again, and it gets better. The plot thickens. Uh, Wilder called him on the phone a few days later to, to thank him for the acknowledgement. And he led with, hello, Fernando, I'm God. So, you know, maybe nobody's perfect, but I think Billy was pretty close to divine. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, I'm happy to go out on that note. 
I'll wrap up by just thanking all of you for coming together for this this uh, freewheeling discussion of Billy Wilder. I hope people would listen uh, and then go seek out the movies we talked about and ones we didn't as well. So thank you, Sheila, Steve, and Karen again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs>